Welcome to My Millennial Property, Emily Wallace here. I am doing a Q&A session today. This is your first time listening to the podcast. You might not know, but typically these episodes are done with John Pigeon and myself. He'll be back next week. Today, I am answering quite a few of your questions that came through the Facebook group. So things around using a buyer's advocate, is it even worth it? We're talking also about pre-auction offers and how to make those pre-auction offers. We're also talking about private sales and how to make an offer attractive in the market, particularly when it can be a heated market. And we're also going to touch on the steps that it takes to buy a property once you've actually signed the contract. When is the deposit due? When do you need to put all the money in the bank account? What actually happens and when do you start paying those repayments? So all that and more in today's episode, let's get into it. The first question for today comes from Leighton Avery and Leighton asks, so many people in Sydney own investment properties that are worth so much less than what they paid for them, even going back as far as 2015. How long do you think people should hold a loser? Great question, Leighton. And this is not just exclusive to the Sydney market. I've seen it down here in Melbourne. And I know that John has also seen it in other states and territories across the nation, where particularly when somebody has bought a property off the plan, when developers have extremely good marketing tactics to effectively sell you a piece of paper. Let's face it, when you're doing true off the plan sales, you are trying to get buyers to buy into a project so you have enough funding to then go and actually construct the project. The banks typically need to see about 50% of the construction sold before they will let you start building or get the construction loan. So I personally think in terms of properties being maybe worth exactly the same or even less than what someone paid for them in 2015. I would safely assume a lot of these are properties that people bought off the plan and were sold the dream. The part of the question that asks, how long do you think people should hold a loser? Well, the biggest thing around property investment is that you're doing it for one of two reasons or maybe both, either cash flow or capital growth. And the ideal investor usually wants a bit of both. So if your property has gone backwards in value or is the same value and the cash flow from the rental yield is just not there, i.e. you're having to put money in each month. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Month to cover the gap of all the outgoings, not only the mortgage repayments, but maybe body corporate fees, council rates, maintenance, property management fees, all those things that we have to consider as an investor. Then in terms of holding onto the property, I think you've got to ask yourself the question, where do I cut my loss and learn the lesson not to make that mistake again? Or do I write it out and see if we will get some capital growth in this particular property? It's a really tricky one. And to be honest with you, probably a good starting point to unpack this would actually be a clarity call with John. John does these, uh, they're about an hour long session and there'll be a link in the show notes below. But if you've been a long time listener, you will know that I am a property investor myself. I have three investment properties, but when it comes to being a professional buyer's advocate, I am very heavy on the home buying front. So my knowledge lies a lot in home ownership as opposed to 
investing and giving advice around investments. And I know where my strengths are and I always play to those uh, where I can. And I am very grateful that we have John as part of the show to add that element of the investor side of things because that's definitely where he is. He runs a, a buyer's agency. He's based in New South Wales, but he buys all over the country with his team. And he is a great point of call when it comes to understanding the intricacies of investing. Next question is from Daniel Quinn. Using a buyer's advocate, aka, am I too lazy to do the research and I'd rather just pay someone to do it so I don't make a serious error? Are they worth the cost? Great question, Daniel. And I think the biggest thing here is actually acknowledging that to be an investor, I don't think you can be lazy. I think you can certainly be lazy when it comes to not wanting to research every single suburb in Australia to understand where the best one will be for growth and expansion over time. I understand that a lot of property investors work their own nine to five job, maybe even more, maybe they're running a business, maybe they've got kids in the mix and responsibilities that don't afford them the extra time to research. So that's one element. And I think it's okay if you simply don't have the time to do the research because a lot of people don't. But in terms of outsourcing to a buyer's advocate or a buyer's agent, one of the same term, it's just that um, for some reason, Melbourne say buyer's advocate a lot more than buyer's agent, but that's okay. So in terms of outsourcing it to a professional, I think the biggest thing would be understanding that you can't be lazy once you actually buy the property. So as an investor, you really need to be active in making sure that things are attended to. Obviously, a great property manager on board saves you a lot of headaches and a lot of work but keeping on top of knowing what maintenance is required, also knowing how that property is growing and keeping a check on it, you know, maybe every quarter, every six months, is your rent in line with the market? Just making sure that you know the ins and outs of the property that you've bought. In terms of actually using a buyer's advocate to do the research and secure the property for you, I personally think there is great value in doing that. And I have even done that myself. I actually outsourced to another company, that's not obviously not me. I don't buy investments. I outsource somebody else to buy two of my investment properties. And I actually haven't stepped foot in either of those properties. I think the best investor mindset is that you buy where the numbers stack up, you take the emotion out of it, and you have someone on the ground who can do all that work for you and basically present to you on a silver platter the best options for your price point. And keep in mind, when I say price point, you don't have to be a huge investor to see the returns in using a buyer's advocate. A lot of the investment space, um, the budgets probably sit around 500K, probably an average budget would be 500K to get into the market. Maybe even less. I know there's some people buying, you know, three to 350. One thing I would say to you is just make sure if you are engaging a professional, that they're not disguised as a buyer advisor. Be aware of that term, buyer advisor. Typically, it's actually somebody who is a sales agent for a development, like a Greenfields estate, selling house and land packages and getting kickbacks from the developers to sell those. Just be really careful. I always say, if you're not paying, you're not the client. So if someone's offering you free advice and a free service to pick the best investment opportunity, but you're not actually paying them to be independent and engage them in the process, that is a major, major red flag. Uh, do your research on the property groups before you engage anybody through that process. And if you're unsure, maybe even ask to speak to a past client and see what their experience was like in using them uh, before you go ahead. 
So I hope that's answered your question, Daniel. I do think it is worth it. It's okay to be lazy slash don't have enough time to do the research phase. That's actually really understandable. To be in a position where you can invest, you probably have saved up a fair bit of money for a deposit and you need the cash flow to be able to service the loan. So I appreciate you're probably a busy professional, but make sure you're not lazy as an investor moving forward beyond the purchase. Next question comes from Samuel. And actually, I can see there's about five question marks in the paragraph itself. So we'll unpack each question as we go along. Samuel has asked some easy ones for first home buyers in New South Wales. And actually, this is applicable to any buyers. So um, I think it's just easy ones for first home buyers in the different stages of buying. When is stamp duty due if you have to pay it? So emphasis on if you have to pay it. Every state and territory has different thresholds for when you are stamp duty exempt. They also have concessions on sliding scales of reductions for stamp duty up to certain price points. I know in Melbourne, it varies based on metro or regional, and I believe that New South Wales may be the same, but do your research or simply ask your conveyancer. They are actually the one who process the duties form to lodge for stamp duty to see if there's anything payable or exempt. But in terms of when it's paid, Samuel, it is paid at the settlement. So it's part of your funds to complete along with the deposit that's been accounted for, the money that the bank's bringing to the table, and then any uh, surplus funds that you need to have, stamp duty, the rates that are being prorated, the conveyance of fee, any banking fees, they're all payable at the settlement itself. The next question that Samuel has in this line of questions, after an offer at what stages are payments needed, i.e. how much would the deposit be if your offer is accepted? Great question. A standard deposit for the contract of sale when your offer is accepted is generally 10% of the purchase price. So if you paid $700,000 for the property, typically your deposit required is $70,000 and that money sits in the agent's trust account until settlement unless you have been served and signed an early release of deposit form. Now, please, please lean on your legal representative for this. Sometimes there is a request for that money rather than it sitting in the agent's trust account. There is a request for it to be released to the vendors ahead of time. Maybe they need the funds to go and buy another property themselves or they've just requested it because they need the money. Do not sign any legal documents about releasing deposits until you have sought proper legal advice and that your conveyancer or lawyer advises that it's okay to do so. So in terms of the payment needed for the deposit of the sale, it's standard 10%. However, you actually can negotiate this amount. So let's just say you're contributing a fixed amount deposit regardless of what the purchase price is. Like let's take the $700,000 purchase price example so we're saying 10% was 70,000, but you might have a fixed amount in cash, like accessible in your bank account of $50,000. And maybe the rest is being made up by a guarantor loan or the funds are coming from somewhere else at a later date. You can actually specify the fixed amount of $50,000 as your deposit. Just a hot tip on deposits as well, by the way, and I don't want to linger on this for too long, but I think you'll find it helpful. When it comes to deposits, one thing I do for my clients and I think a lot of buyers don't know they can do this, is we actually put down a part deposit until the property is unconditional. So what that means is, should we place an offer and the vendor accepts it, we might put down a nominal amount of say $10,000 
And then the balance of the 10% deposit is not payable until the contract is unconditional. Now, this is when you're going through a private sale or an expressions of interest. I'm not talking about auctions here because obviously auctions are unconditional on the day you sign the paper and away you go. But when it comes to the deposit for private sales, you could do the part deposit of 10,000 and then once calling off is finished and once any conditions have been met, such as building and pest, for example, or maybe a strata report needs to be done, then you can transfer the balance of the 10% across. The reason we do that is just to mitigate risk um, of the funds being held when the contract isn't unconditional and also because logistically, a lot of the time you have to actually get authority from your bank to transfer a large sum. You might need to go into the branch itself or call them and be on hold for a little while to up your daily limit for the purpose of that transfer. So that's why we do it. The next question in this line of questions from Samuel says, when do you fully pay for the property? You fully pay for the property at the settlement. So on settlement day, basically what happens is all the funds are accounted for. So the deposit you've made to the agent's trust account is accounted for. The money that the bank is loaning you is there and then also any surplus funds that you need to provide. So you might need to top up what you're putting in. You might not just be a straight 10% that you've already contributed upon the contract of sale signing. You might have an extra 10% you need to put in. You might have 10% plus the stamp duties. Your conveyancer will let you know what amount of money you need to have ready at settlement and which bank account it needs to be in. Sometimes they put it into the conveyancer's trust account. Sometimes it comes out of your bank account. Be aware of their systems and processes so that that money is there and you don't delay your settlement. There can be penalties for settlements being delayed. So check that out with your conveyancer. Final question along this line of question from Samuel. Would you get in trouble for not telling a broker or bank you don't have dependents so you can borrow more? The banks are going to find out pretty quickly if you have dependents because when you submit your documentation for a pre-approval, you have to give three months worth of bank statements from your everyday spending or any account that you have really. And they can pretty quickly work out if you have dependents based on the money that you're spending, where you're spending it. I actually heard of a story once, this is going slightly to the side, but I heard of a story once of somebody who they actually didn't have any dependents, but they were an auntie to a lot of nieces and nephews. And they had all these repeated transactions at, I think it was Toy World or something like that. And the bank actually queried if they did have a dependent because of the volume of transactions that was going there. So, you know, you're buying toys, like you must have children. They provide a documentation to explain that they don't. But just be aware that they really go through those bank statements with a fine tooth comb to understand what you're spending, where you're spending, and it'll come out if you have dependents. I would not recommend lying to the bank. That's just my personal opinion. Moving on to the next question. Moira Ann asks, how to stand out from the crowd when making an offer? And you know, there are other people genuinely interested with contracts. Great question. And I think the answer to this varies on the circumstance of the vendor. So the fundamental rule of placing a good offer and standing out from the crowd stems down to what questions you ask the agent and how much information you have. Information is power when you go through the process of negotiating a property and the agents aren't going to freely give you all the information you need because they don't have to. So asking good questions is a good place to start. For example, I would ask an open-ended question. What's the vendor's situation? Not 
when does the vendor need to settle or, you know, something that's closed? What is the vendor's situation? And the agent might say, well, look, their situation is they actually really need to sell this property to move on to the next one. They're probably going to go rent somewhere for six months and, you know, try and find something to buy, but they want to know the figure of this property before they move on. Or they might say they've actually bought somewhere and it's really important to them that the settlement of this property happens on the same day as the new property they've purchased. So therefore, they're only accepting offers with a settlement date of insert date. So asking a question of what the vendor's situation is or what's the vendor's circumstance is a really good way to get some info out of the agent. And then I think it's understanding who you're up against in terms of what might be favorable to a vendor. Keeping in mind, vendors are human and particularly when it's a home that they have lived in, they do have an emotional attachment a lot of the time. In my experience, particularly I have been in so many signing situations where we've won an auction, we sign the contract, the vendor comes and signs the contract and then they do the sold sticker. And there is so much emotion. Like I personally haven't cried at these things, but my clients have and vendors have because it's the end of an era for a lot of people. So I think in the situation where a vendor is selling their family home, you can have more sway, I guess, in putting context around who you are and what you intend to do with the home. For example, If it was what we call a renovator's delight, a property that needs a little bit of love on a really good size parcel of land and the mix of buyers were developers but also home buyers, you might find that simply writing a short paragraph, even just two sentences explaining who you are and what you intend to do with the property could set you apart from a developer because maybe the vendor really wants the property to go to another family, you know, to be restored and live there for 15 plus years as opposed to seeing it knocked down and changed into townhouses. So to be honest with you, in my experience, I have won a handful of properties over presenting who the buyer is and what they intend to do with the property and why they want it and why they love it. That has worked at times. In fact, I have bought a property for $20,000 less by doing that. But the reality is a lot of vendors are price motivated. So then the next thing becomes, where is your limit and how can you make sure your offer is the highest offer within your limit? That comes down to understanding the sales process and asking the agent how they will be handling offers. Is it a best and final situation? Do you get a right of reply? Um, Maybe it's making sure you go in with an odd number because that does quite often work as well. Rather than going at a round figure ending in a zero or a five, go in at an odd number, maybe even with a 500 at the end of it, just to make sure it's just that little bit more. But in my experience, I would say maybe even 90% of the time, it comes down to price and terms. So in terms of standing out, know how much the property is worth, but also know your limit and get as much information from the agent as you can. I'm going to take a short break and I'll come back with some more of your questions. If it's your first time listening and you're wondering where I'm getting all these questions from, we have a Facebook group for the community of the My Millennial Money community. Just search it on Facebook. There's quite a few, like I think, I don't have it in front of me right now, but I think there's like 40,000 people in there or something crazy. So go and check it out. There's a lot of like-minded people, but it's where you can ask questions. If you put hashtag property on your question, it will land in our pocket and we will answer it for you. 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Before we get back into all your questions, which I have thoroughly enjoyed answering, just a quick note that John has launched a book, which is very exciting. I saw him do the little reveal on Instagram about his new book and it is called Sort Your Property Out and Build Your Future and he's got over 25 years worth of experience and knowledge that he's basically collated into a book that is suitable for investors but also home buyers to learn about property. I think he talks about developments in there as well as getting your first investment property, what to look out for at inspections, things that you need to know about buying a property and creating wealth through property. He's doing a tour across Australia. He's getting to as many states as he can. I know he is coming down to Melbourne. I'm pretty sure he's going to Perth, Sydney, maybe Adelaide. I could be wrong. But going off the top of my head is probably not the best thing. Have a look at the link in the show notes. It says exactly where he's touring and the dates. Get yourself a ticket. There will actually be a property seminar as part of the evening. I believe that will go for maybe 45 minutes to an hour. And then you'll get the chance to meet John. I will certainly be at the Melbourne one in support and to meet all of you. So I hope to see you there. Now, back into it. Where were we? James has asked, how do you keep up with the market? What are some good resources? Is it as simple as tracking your property and some favorited ones on realestate.com? Good question, James. And yes, realestate.com can be a great source of information in terms of keeping an eye on the market more broadly. I wouldn't rely on their estimated selling range when it comes to like if your property is not on the market and you type your address in and it says like what it's worth and it's got low confidence, medium confidence or high confidence, that is computer generated. So I very much take those with a grain of salt. It's not a true valuation. If you want to keep up with the market, look, I know plenty of real estate agents are happy to do routine appraisals every sort of 12 months. 
they'll come in, they'll look at your property, see if you've done any updates or made it any different than when they last saw it and talk you through some of the recent sales in the area and provide you with an updated market value of the property. Outside of that, in terms of keeping on top of the suburb data and more generally broader data of vacancy rates and rental income per week and things like that, CoreLogic and RP Data is a really great resource. We get a lot of information for the podcast from CoreLogic and their team have been really, really helpful to us. We've had Eliza from CoreLogic come on a few times and she is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to all the data that's involved across the country. So maybe go back and have a look at some of those episodes as well. But in terms of resources, CoreLogic, RP Data, If you want something to do with understanding what's going through council and planning and things like that, Land Checker is a really good data point. And also I hear of a lot of people in the industry using Archistar. That's another one. In terms of the live updates of properties selling in your area and being across, you know, how competitive is your stock type that you have, you know, a three bed, two bath, one car house in the area. Instead of traipsing out to open homes every Saturday or going to auctions, did you know that you can watch auctions online providing that the real estate agent uses these apps? But there's one called Gavel, G-A-V-L, which is an online platform which covers auctions and it tells you the sold results and shows you the bidding. Another one called Anywhere Auctions as well. So maybe download those two, keep an eye on your suburb and see if there's auctions happening in your area. But outside of that... CoreLogic, RP Data, Landchecker, Archistar would be the ones that I would look to. Kirsten Ann has asked, pre-auction offer advice and tips as it seems agents are getting more open to these lately. You are absolutely correct, Kirsten, and every agency handles it differently. So my one fundamental gripe in the real estate industry is that the pre-auction offer process is not mandated. It's actually not standardised. Every agency does it differently. Well, at least here in Victoria, they do. And I'm pretty confident it's the same across the nation. So you need to be careful and understand what the process is. In terms of the willingness of a vendor to take a pre-auction offer, first things first, you need to understand, is that even possible? For example, if the property is going to auction because it's a deceased estate and there are multiple beneficiaries and they have agreed the most transparent way to sell the property is through an auction so they can get a live market price it is highly unlikely that they will sell prior to auction. They won't accept an offer prior because it's the process they've been told they need to do and that's what they have to do. So that's out of the question. If it's a situation sometimes of divorce, that's also another example where they just run it through to auction because you know through either court orders or just mutual agreement through their lawyers, they've agreed that is the sale process and they will take the highest price on the day. Outside of that, If the vendor is willing to take a pre-auction offer, it's going to have to be pretty attractive. So keeping in mind that auctions are an unconditional sale, it would be highly, highly unlikely, and certainly in my experience, I have noticed this, it would be unlikely that a vendor would take an offer that has conditions attached to it prior to auction. So no building and pest condition on there, no finance clause on there. They basically want it to be unconditional as soon as possible. And then here comes the tricky part of understanding how that offer will be treated. So let's just say the quote range on the property was seven to 750 and you've done your research, you've been in the market a little bit and you know that this is going to be a popular property. You can tell by the number of people going to the open home and requesting contracts and you think 
it's pretty likely to get upwards of 800K. Because let's be honest, that's sometimes what happens. And if you're new to property and this is your first time hearing about auction quotes versus sold results, get yourself out to a few auctions because majority of the time they do sell beyond the quoted range. And that's a whole other can of worms to unpack for another day. But let's just keep on the path of where we're getting to. So seven to 750, you think it's worth or will go for at least 800K and you want to nominate to put in a pre-auction offer. Before you talk price, understand process. Now, there are a couple of different ways this can go. If the vendor is willing to take a pre-auction offer, they may decide they still want an auction vibe, an auction arena. And that means they will do what's known as a boardroom auction. So a boardroom auction is when an acceptable offer is placed on the property. The vendor goes, yes, it's met our reserve price. We're on the market and selling. If anybody wants to compete above that price, see you in the boardroom, we'll battle it out. Anything over that price Um, we will sell for and the highest bidder will win. Basically an auction before the auction happens in a boardroom, like a physical boardroom in a real estate agent's office. It can be very intimidating if you're not used to bidding. And the good thing about it is it's a very transparent process. So hear me out because here's the other way it can go. A pre-auction offer is accepted and then everybody is told to put their best and final offer forward. And you have no idea if your offer is 20000 more than the next one or $1,000 more than the next one. You're stabbing in the dark. You are trying to make your offer as attractive as possible. And don't get me wrong, this actually is the best method for the vendor because typically people really stretch themselves and put a pretty high offer forward in this situation because they don't want to miss out. But back to the case scenario of the boardroom auction... I have been in situations and won a boardroom auction where I still have 10 or 15K up my sleeve of where the client's or the buyer limit is. So the benefit of doing a boardroom auction is usually the bids are in very small increments against each other, like even $5,000, $2,000, $1,000 bids. And when you miss in a boardroom auction, you miss by a little bit. Like honestly, it's minuscule. I think it goes to show, particularly when we've had money left up our sleeves, that had we done a best and final offer and put forward our absolute top maximum spend in the form of an offer, the vendor would have done much better. However, because real estate agents probably don't have the greatest reputation overall in terms of being transparent and process, a lot of agencies are trying to change that and they are doing it through this boardroom auction process where they're trying to show buyers, hey, our vendor is happy to sell at this price. Anything more than this is a bonus now. So it's between you and the buyers to fight it out. It's not, you know, it's not a vendor thing. They've got their money in terms of their price. They're happy with that. Anything more, happy days. So don't be scared or turned off by the phrase boardroom auction, understand it actually is a benefit to you. It's a transparent way to buy property and you'll probably end up spending less than if you were to put your best and final offer forward should you be the winning bidder. So to answer your question in coming around a sort of full circle, Kirsten, the biggest tip I have around pre-auction offers is to understand the agent's process. It is not mandated. It is not stock standard how they go about it. So know that before you go ahead, you might decide if it becomes a best and final situation that you'd rather just wait until the actual auction day so that you can see the other bidders transparently bidding in front of you and you know exactly what's going on. Next question comes from Emily. Great name, by the way, Emily. 
Emily asks, transitioning to the buying mindset, how do my partner and I know if we are emotionally ready to start seriously looking to place offers and not just research anymore for a primary place of residence? We have never lived out of home before, so the prospect of buying and moving out simultaneously is very daunting. Emily, that sounds like a bit of a predicament that you're in. And look, I'm sure uh, having not moved out yet, you've probably had a really good savings rate, which is awesome. John and I always encourage listeners to look at where they can save money. And for some people that is living with parents and I think it's a great way to save. So good on you. In terms of moving out and buying all in one process and with your partner, it is a very big commitment financially to do so. And I think it comes down to a couple of things around this mindset piece. If you're buying in an area that you're already familiar with, that kind of takes away the question mark of, you know, are we buying in the right pocket? Do we like this location? But if your budget doesn't afford you to live where you know, and maybe that's where you've been living with your parents or an area that you spend a lot of time in, maybe you're looking at a brand new area that you don't really know much about, but you know your money affords you that particular area with the type of accommodation you're after, I would strongly suggest considering renting for a period of time. Now, the reason I suggest this is because it could save you from making a mistake. But on the flip side, it also gives you the encouragement and the knowledge to know that you're making a good choice if it is the right area for you. There's quite a few people I have spoken to that have maybe gone into their second purchase with a different mentality than their first because their learning from their first purchase was that they didn't educate themselves enough on the area and in hindsight, it wasn't the right choice lifestyle-wise. So Emily and Emily's partner, my advice to you would be make sure you really know where you want to live and if you don't feel confident or comfortable just yet, get a short-term rental. Yes, it's a little bit of a pain to move for a short term, but short-term pain, long-term gain. Committing to a mortgage, especially together, is a large commitment. You don't want to do it half-heartedly. So do your research by renting in the area first, also seeing how you go living together before you commit to a purchase. When you are ready to buy together and you found the area and you're happy with it, One of the most common things I see with couples buying is potentially conflicting must-have lists. So I always say make a must-have list and a nice-to-have list. What I mean by that is what is the absolute bare minimum that you will accept? Bed, bath, car, and then also access to amenity. For some people, it's like only a 15-minute walk to public transport or it must be you know near the beach because I swim every morning or I train for 43 times a week and I need to get to this oval so it must be within a 15-minute drive of that. Those sorts of parameters that you really need to consider for your lifestyle, write them all down, maybe even write them down separately and then compare notes together and see what you're on the same page about with your must-haves and your nice-to-haves. Then I think it's about understanding that your first purchase is not typically your forever purchase. So usually, certainly in my experience, the most common thing I hear is, oh, it's a five to seven year plan. We want to buy, get into the market, two bedroom property. You know, we might have a child in the future, but we have our dog for now and it's a good size property that has, you know, like an outdoor space and it will springboard us into our next. So for a lot of people, it's not their forever home. It's also for a certain stage of life, maybe early 30s, late 20s, maybe a bit later than that as well. Or even for some people, maybe they've been renting for a while or they've been a rent vester and now they're ready to commit to their own home. And that might be, you know, 40, 50, 
maybe even 60. I, I helped someone who was, I think she was 74 as her first purchase, bless her. There's, it's never too late for your first purchase, let me tell you that. But understanding the purpose of the purchase and the intention of the timeline of living there. And if it is something that's meant to springboard you into the next home, what can you do to help grow equity and value? Maybe it is doing a cosmetic renovation. Maybe it is utilizing your budget to get a two bedroom instead of a one bedroom. All these sorts of factors that can help with ensuring that your property grows well over time. Make sure you're very considered in your approach and try and withdraw some of the emotion from it. I know it is an emotional choice, but try your best to pull back a little bit and see what sticks out as most important. Hope that's helped. I know I've gone on a bit of a tangent with that one, Emily, but hopefully that has helped you at least have some questions to think about together with your partner. Final question for today. Nick has asked, how do you know what to do to your home to increase its value? I've bought a place that's got no yard, for instance, and not sure about things like powdered workshops, pools, or what sort of internal improvements will be best. Great question, Nick. And this kind of flows on from what I was just touching on with Emily's question there about springboarding you into the next property. So a good place to start would actually be even speaking to some real estate agents to see what vendors do to make their property sale ready. Now I can tell you that the bare minimum is usually flooring, paint and window furnishings go a long way in making a property feel updated, neat, clean, tidy, Uh, one thing that's really on trend at the moment seems to be tile paint. So if you've got tiles that are in perfectly good nick, but they're a bit of an odd color, I think yellow used to be in fashion in the eighties and it's not really anymore. Some of those sage greens have come back in and earthy tones, even a burnt orange. I would get on board with, to be honest, educating yourself a fair bit through socials. I mean, it's such a visual thing, updating a house, renovating a house. There's lots of accounts. I don't don't mean take advice from as such, but take inspiration from them on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, wherever you consume your content to have a look at improvements that go a long way. Things that don't go a long way, for example, I'll take a classic one, updating an island bench. So you might have a property that was in pretty original condition when you bought it and the bench needs some attention. Maybe it's got some chips in it or it's just a bit of a ugly color or it just doesn't quite match the style of what you want it to look like. When a buyer comes to your home or even when a valuer comes to your home to look at you know, what they feel it's worth, they are not going to notice the difference between a bench top that costs $300 versus $700. And I'm just stabbing in the dark here with figures because I don't know about the cost of bench tops. They're probably more than that. But you hear what I'm saying? It's more about the look and how you can create an expensive look on a budget. And I can tell you now, you're in the best era of social media content to understand this because there are just so, I mean, maybe it's just my page. I get flooded with them all the time, but there are so many DIY pages that show you and even like locally based Australia ones, how you can make your home look picture perfect on a budget and add value to it so that it creates an emotional feeling. And when it's time to sell, gets the highest price possible. So if you aren't really keen on doing DIY, I would also speak to potentially a renovation group who usually do renovations for sale. So there's actually quite a few companies where their whole business model is actually just for express renovations. They work with real estate agents to get properties ready for sale to help it go higher. 
I would pick their brains or, you know, pay for their time, but certainly understand from them what the best thing is to do and maybe even engage them to do a mini makeover of your home. Sometimes vendors do these renovations and they end up like falling in love with their property again and they stay longer. That could be you. But if you're really wanting to build some equity and help springboard into your next property, that would be the starting point for sure. Well, I hope you've taken some value out of today's episode. I know there's been quite an array of questions on the show today, but if you're listening and you're in the process of buying, I know that 2024 is going to be a bit of a turbulent wait and see market. Keep posted on the podcast for updates on what John and I are seeing on the ground because we're all trying to navigate this together. No one has a crystal ball and I'm sure you've heard that phrase many a time. Don't forget to check the link in the show notes for the dates and tickets for John's book tour. And if you're in Melbourne, I will definitely see you there. And if you have a question, don't forget to put it in the Facebook group. We would love to hear from you. Until next week and John will be back. All right, bye. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast and Glenn James are authorised representatives of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services licence 451289. 